We're going to be looking and continuing our series in Mark. We're taking a break for the next few weeks. Um, not quite sure if we're going to come back to it during Christmas. Um, this year, just to give you a heads up, might be a little bit different. We always have um, an Advent series. I don't know if we're going to have an Advent sermon series this year, and I don't know that we're, we're probably not going to have quite the, the kids' Christmas program we, we typically have. Um, we'll probably will do something, but it might probably not be the same. Um, so we might return to Mark in December. If not, it might be the last time we're in Mark until the new year. We'll see. How's that for planning ahead? <laughs> Sorry, I know I'm supposed to know more than this, but right now it's just, it's next step, next step. All right, let's read verses 30 through 44, a familiar story to us, the feeding of the 5,000. And let's start in verse 30. I mean, I'm reading from the ESV, but please follow along with in whatever translation you have. Well, the apostles turned, returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them, among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Well, let's pause and pray. God, we ask now that you would help us as we have come to your word. Would you write the eternal truths of your word on our hearts? Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Well, this is one of probably the most familiar stories to us. Perhaps it's one of your favorite stories. Many kids love this story, but I would guess it's not just kids that love this story. Many adults love this story, this incredible story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with simply five loaves and two fish. And now most of you probably know this by now, but just so in case you don't, it was actually much more than 5,000 people. In fact, um, some estimate that it was up to 15,000 to 20,000 people. The word that is used there to describe the people says it's 5,000 men. And that word is not the generic word for human. There's sometimes where it refers to brothers or men in the Bible, and it's really just human, and we can add male and female or brothers and sisters. But this is the specific word for men that is referred to here. So some estimate that it's up to 15,000 to 20,000 people that are fed, which is five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, if you think that, I think as you hear that, as I did when I first read the commentary, commentaries, I thought, well, that's probably exaggerating. That seems, that seems like a little much. 
But I said last week I was in Rockville, church preaching, and I, when I first, when I got there on Saturday, I was kind of asking the demographics of the church. I said, what is your, how many are in your church? What is the makeup of your church? And Joel, the guy I was staying with, he's one of the elders there, he said, well, last year we averaged 204 people a Sunday. I said, okay. He said, but he said, you should know this, that 96 of those 204 were 18 and younger. So that's roughly 50%. Now, I don't know what is considered men. They had another 30 that were in the 18 to 24 year old, but we'll, we'll include those as, we'll include the 18 to 24 as men. But so in Rockville, you had half the church as kids. So if you take the other half of that, you figure probably more than half, but we'll just say half are women. So you got 25%. So last Sunday, I preached to 50 men, but there were 204, probably more than that, that were there. So it's not that far fetched, um, to think that. So this is over 15,000 people that Jesus feeds with merely five loaves and two fish. And it's an, it's an amazing story. And again, it's one of our favorite stories. Uh, but one of the reasons that it's our favorite and one of the reasons it's so well known to us, and I didn't know this ahead of time, but I realized this this week, is that this is the only miracle of Jesus, the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew Mark, Luke, and John. This is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that is recorded in all of those Gospels. And if you skip ahead just a few chapters in Mark, in Mark chapter 8, you'll see Jesus again feeding a large number of people, this time 4,000. I don't know what we're going to do when we get to that sermon, because it's going to be basically the same thing over again. It's the same thing except 4,000, not 5,000. Mark and Matthew record that. So six times in four Gospels, we have this account of Jesus feeding a multitude of people with only a few loaves of bread and some fish. And that might not seem that different to you, but think about it. It's the only miracle that is included that many times. So this is an important story to the early church, and particularly it's an important story to the apostles as they want it to be one that is remembered. They want us to know this story. And God wants us to know this story because he put it in the scriptures for six different times. There's several reasons as we think about why it might be so important. One, maybe just it's a it's an easy story to picture in our mind. But another reason might be addresses a need that all of us have. One of the most basic needs of humans is that we need food. All of us can relate to the hunger crowd. All of us can picture ourselves being there with Jesus. But more than that, as one commentator put it, no, no miracle outside of the resurrection confronts us with the reality of the deity of Jesus more than this one. No miracle outside of the resurrection confronts us with the fact that this has to be God than this story. During the 20th century, as people were trying to write off, and it happens before that and it still happens today, but as people were trying to, to write off the, the deity of Christ and write off the, the miracles, they, they looked at this story and they tried to begin to rationalize well, what must have taken place. And they came up with some pretty crazy ideas. One of the ideas was that Jesus probably hid some food in a cave nearby and they just went and got it. And Jesus said, see, I tricked you. You thought I wasn't ready. Some say that he called ahead or sent ahead and had some women prepare some food ahead of time. Uh, one popular teaching was that this story was a, a story in a way it was preached was a story about sharing. It was an ethical story and Jesus led the way in sharing all that he had. And as people saw his example, they thought, well, okay, maybe I do have enough to share. And they kind of 
pulled out their own fish and bread and they began to break it and share with one another. And certainly that is a good and even biblical concept. We teach our kids sharing all the time, but that is not the point of this story. The point of this story is to reveal to us what Mark and the other Gospels have been trying to tell us all along and that this Jesus, this man is God. Only God can do what he does in this story. Another reason why this story is so important to us is that there is a connection in this story between Jesus and Moses. You'll notice that in these verses, three times, the area that they are in is referred to as a desolate area. Depending on your translation, you might have the word wilderness. They are in the wilderness. They are in the middle of nowhere. And for the Jewish readers, as they read this story, as they see this story, and as they experience this story, it would have been obvious to them, as they are familiar with the Old Testament, that they've seen this played out before. As the people of God were in the middle of a wilderness, where there was no food, and miraculously there is a provision of food. The story points us to the fact that there was a greater Moses here. Moses simply asked God for bread. He simply requested, and, but, th- but this Jesus does the providing. He brings the bread. And these reasons are why this story is so important and why this story is so wonderful. But again, I want to focus on what this story tells us about the one at the center. What this story tells us about Jesus. What this miracle tells us about Jesus. Before we get into the miracle itself, we want to see the setting of the miracle. Where this miracle takes place. And In fact, we could have divided this sermon into two and simply focused on verses 30 through 34. But if we look at verses 30 and 34 through 34, we see the setting that this miracle takes place. Now, it's been a while since we were in Mark, but our story actually picks up where verse 13 of Mark left off. The last sermon, the last portion of Scripture that we were in was kind of a detour in the account of Jesus in Mark as 14 through 29 talk about King Herod killing John the Baptist. But if we go back to chapter 13, or verse 13 of chapter 6, we remember that the last thing that took place is that the disciples were sent out two by two to teach, to preach, to heal, and to proclaim the gospel, to cast out demons in all the villages. When we remember that's the last thing, we know that that is what they are returning from in verse 30. They, re, they returned to Jesus from this, from being sent out two by two. And we don't know the time frame of this one commentator said that it was probably at least six to nine months that they have been gone. So it's been six to nine months since verse 13, now to verse 30. They've been away from Jesus. They've been away from each other except the the one that they were sent with. But now they return. Now they gather all together around Jesus and they want to come and they want to tell him all about what happened as they were sent out. Every night at our dinner table, or most nights, my kids will quickly point out, we don't do it every night. Um, They would they want to make sure I'm accurate on this, I'm sure. But many nights at our, our dinner table, we have what we call the highs and the lows, uh, where we go around the table and we tell all our highs and all our lows from that day just to find out what happened in everybody's day. I kind of pictured that as the disciples gathered together with Jesus and they told him their highs and their lows from their six, ni- six months apart. In Luke's account, when Jesus sends out 72, not just 12, but sends out 72, it says they come back reporting all the highs that had happened. They they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to 
excuse me, subject to us in your name. And they shared with Jesus their highs. And I imagine that happened here in verse 30 as they gathered together. But I'm sure there were also some lows that they shared. Perhaps some of them in their excitement had returned to their hometown just like Jesus had returned to Nazareth and they had been rejected in their hometown. Perhaps some of them had very little success to come back and to report. You know, we don't hear about the the apostles being persecuted in the Gospels, but we think about Acts and we think about Paul traveling from town to town and then returning to church, to the church back in Antioch and reporting what happened. I'm sure there were lows that were experienced by these disciples. But they return and gather to Jesus to, to tell them, to tell him and to tell the other disciples all that they had done and taught. Or at least they tried to, if you keep reading. They tried to, but they kept getting interrupted. Mark says that they can't even find time to eat because of the crowd that is constantly surrounding them. They're, they're just constantly bombarded by people. Many were coming and going. And much of this is because of Jesus, but I have to think also that much of this is because of the success of the disciples' outreach. And everybody wants to gather to them. Everyone wants to see this Jesus that they talked so much about. So Jesus looks at them and says, we're not going to get anything accomplished here. Come away with me by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And this is one of those verses that we could just sit and and think about, especially in our culture, because I think this is an important thing for us to see. And that is that there is a time for rest. There is a time for for rest. There's a time for work. There's a time for being sent out. They were just sent out for nine months of active, ongoing work. But there's also a time for rest. There's a time to step back and rest a while. There, this is why we need Sabbath. This is why Sabbath is built into the creation order. This is why we have night and day because God has built into our lives this need for rest. And when we, we neglect rest, we don't accomplish more, but we end up accomplishing Less. I like this quote by Vance Havner, and I have to put it on the wall because it's not going to make any sense if I just read it. And it says this, if we don't come apart, we will come apart. Think about this in the the context of this verse. If we don't come apart, we will certainly come apart. There are times when we need to come apart with Jesus. We need to come apart and rest. There are times we need to shut off the email, when we need to silence the smartphones, when we need to even go to a different location. There are times when we need to come apart, both for rest, but also for time with Jesus. And if we fail to do this, if we neglect to do this, we will find ourselves coming apart. Jesus told his disciples, look, we don't want to come apart before the demands, with the demands of the crowd. So let's come apart before the crowd tears us apart. Uh, but notice what happens when they do, when they come apart, when they go to a solitary place to, to rest and to be together. What happens is what happens so often to Jesus throughout Mark, we've already seen, when he tries to get away, and that is the crowd follows him. The crowd goes after him. In fact, Mark says the crowd gets there before him. They get to the desolate place before Jesus, and they go there and they find out it's not quite so desolate anymore. In the first chapter of Mark, Jesus, it says that Jesus' disciples go out looking for Him in the early hours of the morning and they go out and they find Him praying alone in the wilderness. And they say, Jesus, what are You doing? Don't You know everyone is looking for You? Come on, let's go back to the crowd. 
Well, now the tables are turned, and the disciples are the ones who are looking for time away and just can't find it. The crowd figures out where they're going, and they, they rush ahead to them. In verses 32 through 34, it says they, they get to the desolate place, but they find a great crowd already gathering on the shore. And here's the first thing we see about Jesus in this miracle. And the first thing is, what is his reaction? What is his response to this? You know, you can imagine what your response might be. Frustration, irritation, anger. I think of my, my mornings where I, I really want to get up early and have a nice, quiet morning to myself with my Bible and my coffee. And I just sit down and out comes one of the children. I love my children, but I really need some coffee and time before we're together. Frustration. But what is Jesus' response to this crowd? His response is that he looks and he sees them with compassion. First thing we see in this story is the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. Now this word compassion is a unique word. We might think it's a very familiar word throughout the Bible, but in fact this word compassion, or at least this original word compassion in the Greek, it is only used eight times in the New Testament. And every time that it is used, it is used in some sort of relationship to Jesus. It's either used to describe Jesus, or it's used coming off of his lips, him saying it. It's only used to describe and to refer and to point to Jesus. And this word compassion, it refers to to a deep felt emotion. A deep felt emotion, a profound sense of pity that is felt in the core of one's being, in, in the bowels, in the, in the guts, in the, in the deepest part of you. When Jesus looks at the crowd and, and sees them with compassion, it is not a superficial emotion. It's not a faked emotion, but it is a heartfelt, gut felt emotion as he looks at the crowd and sees them there ruining his quiet time. B.B. Warfield, a theologian in the 1900s, wrote an essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in that essay, he wrote this. He said, the emotion which we should know, sorry, which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to Jesus, whose whole life was a mission of mercy, and whose ministry was so marked by deeds of beneficence, good deeds, doing good is what that means, so marked by doing good that his ministry is summed up in the memory of his followers and acts as going through the land, doing good is no doubt compassion. What he's saying is, if we were going to look at Jesus and look at the emotional life of Jesus in the Gospels and we were going to put one word on it, what would describe Jesus? And that word that we would use to describe Jesus is that he was a man of compassion. He was a person of compassion. He goes on to say and that the divine mercy has been defined as that essential perfection in God whereby He pities and relieves the miseries of His creatures. It includes, that is to say, the two parts of an eternal, internal movement of pity and an external act of beneficence. And I, that's old language, but what I love about this is it's something He felt and then something He did. He felt pity. He felt compassion, but it didn't stay with an emotion, but he reached out and did something towards those he had compassion. And that is a great example for us to follow. We need to be people of compassion. We need to feel a deep sense of pity as we look around at people around the world 
with those around us, and then we need to do something with it. We don't just feel it and, oh, I'm sorry, and then go on about our day, but we need to put action to our feelings. It's a great example for us to follow. But more than that, the compassion of Jesus is a great truth for us to know. Because it's the same compassion of the Godhead that brought about the salvation that we have received and that we have been celebrating this morning. And we see that hinted at in this story of the feeding of the 5,000. Notice in this story the, the reason for the pity, the reason for the compassion as he looks out in the crowd. He looks at them and, it, and he looks at them with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is the reason for his compassion. As he looks out on the crowd there, he, he sees them as a sheep without a shepherd. Well, what does Jesus mean by that? What is, he, what is he picturing? What is he describing as he looks out at this crowd? We can think of some ideas on our own as we might think about sheep without a shepherd. Um, R.C. Sproul told of a time when he was out on a golf course and his golf game was interrupted by a group of sheep that were, out, that were without a shepherd. And sheep that had escaped the confines of a pen. And, and he said as he was standing on the, there on the tee and they were running all over the fairway, they were running this way and that, they were confused, they were lost, and they were directionless and certainly headed for danger. Now, this morning on the way to church, and I should have put it up here, but I showed Kayleen a video, or let her watch a video while I was driving. Let me clarify that. Um, uh, of this sheep that had got, maybe you can find it, you can look it up on YouTube if not, but this sheep that had gotten stuck way down in this hole and of a shepherd just pulling his sheep out of this hole. That's what happens when a sheep was without a shepherd. And Jesus looks at this crowd and, he, and that's what he sees. He sees sheep. He sees men and women who are lost. Men and women who are directionless. Men and women who are, are confused and certainly headed for danger. But in order for us to fully grasp what Jesus is saying, we need to understand this statement within the context of the Old Testament and what the Jewish understanding of this phrase is. Throughout the Old Testament, God is often referred to as the shepherd. We think of Psalm 23, and there's many places where God is referred to as the shepherd of His people Israel. But in addition to that, the leaders of Israel are referred to as shepherds. In Numbers 27, as, as Moses is about to die, he pleads with God not to leave his people without a shepherd. Don't leave my people. Don't leave Israel without a shepherd. And God, the very next verse says God raises up and, and Joshua is installed as the shepherd of the people of Israel. David, the great king of Israel, is referred to, the, to as the shepherd. And Jeremiah, the prophets of Israel, are referred to as shepherds. But the problem is that throughout most of Israel's history, the shepherds of Israel are pretty lousy shepherds. In Ezekiel, God gives a scathing condemnation on the shepherds of Israel. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm not going to put it on the screen. We don't typically read such big portions of Scripture, but I wanted to see this text in light of Jesus' words describing the people of Israel as sheep without a shepherd. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1, he gives a prophecy, a condemnation of the shepherds of Israel. The word of the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. 
The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or to seek for them. And just pause right there and think about what we have seen in our study of Mark of the shepherds of Israel at this time. Think of last week and the thinking of a king, King Herod, as he slaughtered as he lopped off the head of one of the fat sheep in terms of what Ezekiel says. One of the most important sheep of the flock, John the Baptist. He slaughtered him. The forerunner of the Messiah. Think of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. How have they treated the flock? Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says they have not fed them, they have not led them to green pastures. Instead, they have led them right off a cliff. Jesus looks out over the people of Israel and he sees these words of Ezekiel. The sheep are without shepherds. But notice what Ezekiel says next, starting in verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require, require at my hand. I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves, but I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And read, listen to these next words. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and I will gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the habited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. Therefore, they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. That's a big portion of Scripture, but this week as I, as I read that, I didn't know which part not to read because I love to see that fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 34 and Mark 6. The shepherd has come for his sheep. The shepherd has come to rescue his sheep. But in these verses, in Ezekiel 34, do you see the compassion of the Lord? Do you see the, the pity that He felt towards them, but then the action that followed His pity? I will go for my sheep. This is not only true of those who were scattered on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, but it is true for each of us as well. Isaiah 53, we know well, describes us all as sheep without a shepherd. Every one of us going our own way, each finding ourselves lost, directionless, not sure where to go, not sure where to find food, looking everywhere for green pastures to lie down. All the voices we look to as shepherds in this world lead us astray or use us as their own advantage or towards their own advantage and then drop us at the curb. The curb. But the good shepherd, 
the good shepherd moved with compassion for his sheep has come. I love to see the compassionate Lord in these verses in Mark chapter 6. But we go from the compassion of Jesus to the power of Jesus. We focused a lot in Mark on the power of Jesus. And this story again reminds us of the power of Jesus. After being moved with compassion for His people in verse 34, it's interesting to see how Jesus expresses His compassion to them. What action He puts to them. As He sees His sheep without a shepherd, what does He do? It says that He teaches them. Now, we might not think that's the right action to follow. We might think he needs to get them together for a group hug or or some sort of uh, emotional uplift. But, But verse 34 says he had compassion on them and he began to teach them many things. Now, I admit as a pastor, it's very tempting to let's just stay right there and think about that for a while. Let's talk about the importance of teaching and preaching, but but I'm not going to do that. But we need to see That what we need as directionless sheep, what we need the most, is to hear the Word of God proclaimed to us. What we need the most is to hear the Word of God. And Jesus taught them many things, and He taught them for a long time to the point where it got very late in the day. And His disciples, who were we we can judge by this passage, were not quite as moved with compassion as Jesus was looked at it to Jesus and in essence said, hey Jesus, how about we send these people away so we can finally get something to eat? I thought we came here so we could finally eat and so we could finally rest. How about we send them away? We can perhaps even hear a little sarcasm in their voice when they refer to this area as the desolate place. Or at least that's what it's supposed to be. But right now it's a rather full place. Let's make it desolate again. Let's send them away so they can get something to eat. But if there's sarcasm in the voice of the disciples, there's no sarcasm in Jesus' voice when He looks at them and says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. We can resonate with the disciples, maybe laughing a little bit and looking around, and how are we going to do that? How are we going to feed these 20,000 people? To buy enough food for these people would cost us 200 denarii. Now, a denarius in that day, and maybe your translation says almost a year's worth of wages, a denarius was, a single denarius was one day's pay for a laborer. So 200 denarii would be about eight months worth of wages. Eight months worth of wages would be needed to buy enough food to feed all these people. And they look around at each other and they say, we got a little money, but we ain't got eight months worth of wages in our pocketbooks. Jesus, what do you want us to do? Not only that, Jesus, but we've taken inventory and the only food we can find in this entire group is a little boy's lunchbox. This is the same story where they get the food, the five loaves and two fish from a boy. All we've got is this little boy's lunchbox and all it has is five loaves and two measly fish in it. Notice the disciples' first response to Jesus. First response to the task that that Jesus gives them to care for the needs of the crowd, the first response is to check their resources. Jesus, we don't have enough. Now that might seem like a normal response to us. But think about, again, what just happened in the lives of these disciples. Again, go back to verse 17 through 13. Remember what just happened. Jesus sent them out, and He sent them out with very little resources. Intentionally so. Very little resources. 
And as we looked at that passage, we said the reason He sent them with very little resources is so they would learn that God would provide for what was needed. And here they are, fresh back from, from being the, experiencing the benefits of that provision. For nine months, living under God's miraculous provision, and here they are, already having forgotten the lesson. But Jesus is a patient, patient teacher. And Jesus looks at them and He says, just, just give me what you've got. Just give me what you have and let's see what happens. Just give me the little bit that you have and, and let's see what takes place. And they put the little that they have in Jesus' hands. And Jesus does the rest. But it's interesting to notice that Jesus does the rest. Jesus does the multiplying. But notice who it is that does the handing out of the food. The disciples. Jesus divides the loaves. He divides the fish. But He gives it to the disciples to set before the people. And the language of gave and the language of divided is in the present tense. Which means He keeps giving and He keeps dividing. He didn't give them all one lump sum and say, here, go spread all of that out. But he gave them a little bit and they came back. And then he gave them a little bit and he came back. And they gave them, he gave them a little bit and, and they came back. They took what he gave them, gave it to the people and came back and found that there was more to give. You see the lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples and the lesson that Jesus is teaching us in this passage. The disciples, these apostles, as Jesus is, will ascend into heaven soon, His disciples will be left as the under-shepherds of Jesus. The, the disciples will be left as those who were to care for the church. And, and the lesson that Jesus is teaching them, the lesson that they need to learn when faced, for the task, faced with the task of caring for the people of God, is that the response to the task isn't to check our resources to see if we have enough but rather to take our resources, however meager they might be, and place them in the hands of Jesus. And then just keep coming back to Him to give from what He gives to you. And if I was preaching to a group of pastors, I'd probably make that point the whole sermon. But that point is not only for pastors. All of us are called to be ministers to the people of God. In Ephesians, it says that God gave pastors and teachers to the church to equip the saints, which is everyone, To equip the saints for the work of ministry. All of us have the task of the work of ministry. And when faced with the task of ministry, whatever that might mean for each of us, our response isn't, Jesus, this is all I've got and it's not enough. But instead, our response is, Jesus, this is all I've got and it's all yours. It's in your hands and I'm going to keep coming back to you to to take what you give to me. Jesus' response when we say, we don't have enough. We don't have enough. Whatever that enough is, enough strength, enough wisdom, enough status, enough influence, enough charisma, enough time, enough power, whatever that response is when we go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't have enough. What is His response to that? His response is perfect. That's perfect. That means that you will not be tempted to take any of the credit for what I do with it. Put it in my hands and then trust me to work my will and my glory through what you give me. And I love the last line from verse 41. It just, or verse 42, sorry, verse 41. And he divided the two fish among them all. Again, all is 20,000 people. He divided the two fish 
among them all. I don't know what task you are looking at and you think it's just impossible, but I would guess it's not as impossible as two fish feeding 20,000 people. In addition to that, after that, Jesus tells the disciples, go gather whatever is left. Now, if you're one of those disciples, you're thinking, whatever is left? What are you talking about? But each of them, they come back with a basket. As one commentator thought that most likely this basket was their own personal basket, kind of like we carry backpacks around with our stuff in it. Each one of them carried a basket with them and they said, well, let's go fill our baskets. And they ended up coming back with their own baskets, their own backpacks full. Again, who can do this? Only God. Only God can do this. Imagine what He can do with you and with me when we take all that we have and all that we are and put it into His hands and say, Jesus, I know it's not much, but use it. Jesus, I know it's not much, but use it. Use me for Your glory. The last thing we see in these verses is the result. The result of those that are fed on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and that is, They are satisfied. The satisfaction of Jesus. I I love when we just have these short little verses that the whole, the whole idea is summed up in one verse because it's like the, when they were putting verses on, on it, they just said, let's just make this a complete thought. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they all ate and were satisfied. They didn't simply have enough to hold them over till breakfast. They didn't stuff their faces and feel miserable afterwards, but they were satisfied. Another way that word could be used is that they were content. And, and that doesn't mean they simply settled for less, but they had all that they needed. And again, don't miss the big picture that is here. Here they are in a desolate place. They're in a desolate place. They're in a wilderness. But notice what Mark points out in verse 39, that they are commanded to lay down in green grass. And actually the word that is used for, for sit means to recline. I told him to sit down. The, the word sit is actually recline or to, to lay down the way they would eat their meals back then. They're in, their, they're in a desolate place laying down on green grass and they are satisfied. Does that bring anything to your mind? Any other passage of Scripture, especially when we consider that when we met this group, they were sheep without a shepherd. Verse we love so much. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Even when it's in the middle of a desolate place, even when it's in the middle of a wilderness, He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. The word that is used in verse 39 to describe groups, and again in verse 40 to describe groups, is used in other places in the Greek language, to describe garden beds or, or flower beds. And I, and I love that image. They're laying on the grass are these little flower beds of satisfied people. In the midst of a desolate place, those who had once been sheep without a shepherd, now pictures of little flower beds lying and spread out on a green pasture, fully satisfied. How is this possible? Because the Good Shepherd has come for His sheep. This morning, if you feel like a sheep, if you feel like a sheep without a shepherd, if you feel like that sheep on YouTube that is stuck down in a hole and you gotta be yanked out, if the theme song to your life is Mick Jagger singing, I can't get no satisfaction, let me tell you, there is a place where you can find satisfaction. One of the early church fathers, St. Augustine, described his life outside of Christ as restlessness. 
But he said, then he found out why. Because I was made for you, Lord, and my heart is restless until it rests in you. We were made to rest in God. And until we find that rest, as we search and as we look for rest in all of these other places, we're in a constant state of restlessness. And you can resonate with Augustine's feelings where outside of Christ there was this constant restlessness. There was this constant disconnect, a constant unease about your life. But when you came to Christ, you were finally at rest. If you have not experienced that rest, or if you are not experiencing that rest, let me invite you to consider Jesus. Consider, think about the one who was so moved for compassion for you that he came to this earth to die on the cross for your sins so that you might experience the only thing that can bring true peace, true joy, and true rest, and that is in a relationship with God. It's only in that place where your soul will be satisfied. But also this morning, if you have experienced that rest, Rest, let me invite you too to consider Christ. Consider the one who invites you to put everything into his hands so that he might multiply it, so that he might use it, and so that he might use us to bring him glory and to reach out to those sheep who are still wandering without a shepherd. I love this quote by D.L. Moody, which says, Give God your life. He can do more with it than you can. I love it in the picture in those five loaves and two fish. Just give it to God. He's going to do a lot more with it than you can. Give God your life. He can do more with it than you can. But even better, these words from Ephesians. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to His power at work within us. When we put our lives in His hands, His power is at work in us to do more, far more than we could ask or think. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.